This is Nemeth Amota for NEJM Catalyst. I'm speaking today with Dr. Kimberly Dennis, CEO, and David Newton, Director of Operations at SunCloud Health, an integrative outpatient treatment center for mental health and addiction located in Illinois. Let's start, Kim, by understanding the landscape. First, people often use the terms mental health, mental illness, behavioral health, psychiatric illness, addiction disorders, substance use disorders, interchangeably and inconsistently. How do you define these terms and their relationship to each other? So one of the biggest issues, I think, around treating people with a high quality of care who have diseases which impact their brains and therefore their behaviors is the terminology we use to describe those diseases. Um, in the medical field as a whole, there's always been the mental health psych, like this is a quote unquote, this is a psych case, right? Um, whether it's in an emergency room or on a consult liaison service. And I think that's damaging to the patients, uh, first of all. Uh, and I think it also serves to reiterate to our patients that mental illnesses are things that they choose or are about their character or about some sort of weakness of their will, rather than this is a patient who happens to have a disease uh, rooted in his or her brain that impacts the things that our brains do for us, the things that our neocortex and frontal lobes do for us, like make decisions, inhibit impulses, um, motivate us to get up in the morning and be able to go to work. So I don't, I don't particularly like the term mental illness or behavioral health because I think so much of that language is rooted in a very old and false idea that patients who have these illnesses are choosing to be this way somehow. Um, and there's, you know, with, with addiction, I like to use uh, ASAM's definition of addiction, which is very different from DSMology, where we hear the terms substance use disorders the problem with using a term like substance use disorder is that it makes lay people and medical professionals alike think that the disorder is about the substance and the substance mm -hmm. is just a symptom of the disorder. You know, the disorder itself lies in the brain and the reward circuitry and all that's connected to the reward circuitry. And it plays out with a person pathologically pursuing reward or relief through a substance or another behavior. So I think the language that we use perpetuates some of the stigma that is deeply entrenched both within the medical profession and also lay people. What terms should we be using? I like brain diseases. We use specific words for Parkinson's disease or multiple sclerosis. Um, we consider those neurologic diseases you know, because they're related to the brain and the neurons in the brain. Uh, I would say this is much the same, just different parts of the brain. And the symptoms, some of the symptoms actually are motor, but many of the symptoms are not motor symptoms. They're behavioral symptoms. We don't say that people with congestive heart failure have a coughing disorder mm -hmm. or a swelling or, an, you know, an edema disorder. Those are symptoms of underlying pathophysiology that is in that person's heart. Well said. There are also, as we try to understand the landscape of, as you call, brain diseases, 
uh, a myriad of different providers who who treat this this spectrum of uh, disorders and disease in different types of care settings. What are these care settings and who are the types of providers? I'll start with the care settings themselves. Um, and those range from simple outpatient care therapy, individual therapy sessions or outpatient group therapy sessions that uh, people with medical licenses do, psychiatrists do these sessions, but also plenty of people, the majority of people who do these types of sessions have no medical training, and those are therapists, licensed clinical social workers, licensed professional counselors, addictions counselors, and so on. And then all the way up to uh, inpatient psychiatry or inpatient psychiatric units, uh, which are locked and involuntary if necessary. Um, where there's always a psychiatrist involved, nurse practitioners, and then usually social work or case management to get them back out to the outpatient side. The transition to outpatient from a high level, the highest level of care inpatient could include residential, uh, partial hospitalization programs, which are day treatment programs, and then intensive outpatient programs, which typically meet three to five times a week, anywhere from three to four hours. Uh, session. And I would just add that, you know, from an industry standpoint, getting to the types of providers, it's a very, very fragmented industry with, I think, over 14,000 different providers. There are a couple of large uh, hospital systems, conglomerates, that are, for all intents and purposes, private equity firms that have done a lot of acquisition in the last couple of years. But uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very, very fragmented um, with lots of providers, and frankly, it's, it's also very, very disorganized. How is it disorganized? It's, you know, I would say that, you know, when, like, for instance, when somebody is um, discharged from, as Kim just said, from, say, an inpatient level of care, down to something like what we do, which would be intensive outpatient, um, often very, very challenging getting medical records sent to us, coordinating care, um, which, you know, obviously affects everything from medication to, you know, certain types of treatment that maybe the patient responded positively or negatively to at the previous level of care. It's, 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 you know, it's a lot of different companies who are not uh, working together uh, to support the patient's best interests. They're more often working with themselves to support, uh, in many cases, their own bottom line, and that adversely affects the patient. Would you say that that is the top issue the industry needs to address in order to improve care delivery outcomes for patients, or are there other ones that also top your list? I think that's one of the biggest ones mm-hmm. is there's a lack of um, there's a lack of continuity in care because it, just, this is an example of somebody that we've treated recently um, where I think all of these issues sort of collide. You know, a, a person who has five or six medical illnesses, physical health illnesses uh, related to an eating disorder, binge eating disorder. Uh, who needed psychiatric treatment in order to qualify for bariatric surgery. Um, It took a lot of footwork and effort and time, frankly, to be in touch with the bariatric surgeons, to be in touch with the endocrinologists, 
um, in order to make sure that he was actually a good candidate for the surgery and that there would be follow-up care available for him on the psychiatry front uh, after the surgery. And because of the way the system is, you know, we're sort of all focused on the patient in front of us for the time that that patient's in front of in front of us. And as soon as that patient leaves, there's another patient in front of us. So we don't have time built into the system necessarily to make sure that the previous patient gets to where he or she needs to be for that, that own individual's needs um, beyond our scope of service. So this person left successfully completed the surgery, no complications, and then abruptly stopped all of his meds, got severely depressed, and ended up, the police had to go to his house and commit him to an inpatient psych unit. Um, and even that inpatient psych unit within, within our own field of, quote-unquote, mental health, shared no records with us. They knew that he'd been in our program uh, prior to the surgery, and the plan was for him to come back after the surgery and it took another couple of days to track down the inpatient psychiatry records as we got this person back into a PHP level of care here. Um, and, it, you know, there there wasn't, for example, one of the medications that this person was on for low testosterone was testosterone injections. We know that when people abruptly stop testosterone injections, they can have all sorts of both medical and psychiatric complications, one of which includes severe depression and anhedonia, which this person experienced and, and ended him up potentially. He, he had an overdose, uh, which could have killed him if it wasn't for a friend requesting a, a wellness check by the police. So these are the kinds of questions that I think nicely highlight the disorganization, the lack of um, anybody looking at the whole picture, you know, the fragmentation that is just part of healthcare today and, and the lack of, you know, we, I think we both have to be looking at the global picture, uh, population-based health, and find a way to do that that also um, enables us to continue caring for individuals because this individual had very different set of needs than a person with no psychiatric illness going in for bariatric surgery. And I would say that, you know, from, you know, connected to that very closely is, in my opinion, the biggest, the biggest need in our industry is support in shifting the needle from fee for service to value. Because I think once we're focused on value and quality, um, you know, a lot of these problems that Dr. Dennis just described, I think will go away. And, you know, th there's a lot, of, a lot of reasons why the industry is not engaging at the moment in any sort of value creation or measurements of quality indicators. We don't happen to agree with many of those reasons. Um, we're hopeful that the field will move in the direction of measuring quality because absolutely it's in our patient's best interest to do so. But for now, in my opinion, again, very much connected to what Kim just said, uh, we desperately need to shift at least just a little bit away from fee-for-service and towards some sort of system that measures, rewards for, and holds people like us accountable for the quality of care that we're providing. There are certainly places uh, and areas of medicine that are moving towards value-based care, but it's not uh, areas that include any of the chronic diseases that cost our country the most on medical care spend. It's things like knee replacements, 
single episodes of care that are one specialty that are easy to measure. This example that I just shared would require all of the physicians involved to be interested in keeping this guy out of the hospital, both medically and psychiatrically post-op. And if we were all on the same team because we were all incentivized and ultimately rewarded for being on the same team and delivering the most favorable outcome for this patient, then I think we would all be much more inclined to work together because if we didn't work together, our outcome would be poor and we would get paid less. Whereas if we work together, this patient does better and we all are rewarded for increasing value for all constituents. So, you know, I, I think we're on the same page. I just think it's 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 a long ways off, um, but hopefully it will happen sooner than later. I fully support the comment around the importance of shared incentives. I also fully support the, the push for uh, better measurement. We all know that we cannot improve what we cannot measure. What types of outcomes, both clinical and financial, should we be measuring in this space? And are these metrics actually any different than the outcomes we strive to measure and improve in other disciplines like primary care, cardiology, and surgery? I think some of the outcomes are very similar, functional outcomes. Um, you know, how well is the person functioning in his or her life? Are they able to get up and go to work? Are they able to show up to social engagements? Uh, those sorts of things are measured by health-related quality of life, for example, and some of those are the measures that we use as well. There are disease-specific outcomes as well. With patients who have addiction, we can use number of sober days. We can use uh, the ASI, the Addiction Severity Index, is one of the measures that we use for people with eating disorders. There's Eating Disorder Index 3. There's the Eating Disorder Examination Questionnaire. So the tools are out there. I just think it's a matter of coming to some sort of consensus around which tools we're using so that we can actually make meaningful comparisons from site to site or program to program to begin to be able to determine which which programs are most effective, which treatment modalities are most effective. And I think the financial measures are have been leading the charge in mental health anyways uh, with with private insurance companies, you know, the, the quote-unquote quality measures are all short-term financial measures, um, reducing days in the hospital. This is something we want to do, but we want to make sure that we're reducing time and treatment, um, not to decrease the cost of one single episode of care, only to get that person a month from now or two months from now back in a much higher level of care that's much much more costly because they left prematurely because of some artificial parameter from uh, from a financial domain. And you know, I'm I'm this is a real this is a big passion of mine because I in some cases sit on the front front end of phone calls that come in from often very desperate, sick patients, family members who literally have I mean they just have absolutely no idea who they're calling, why they're calling them what we do, what we don't do very well, what the guys across the street do or don't do well. Um, and unfortunately, the field is, uh, I would say, very entrenched in not sharing outcomes um, because I feel like in, in many cases, um, incumbents are, uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally, taking advantage of 
the system as it exists today. Again, it's kind of incentivized by or fueled by the fee-for-service model. Um, so I, I'll sit on the phone often with patients who are interested in learning more about what we do, and half the time it's just sharing with them what we don't do. Um, and we know that because we collect a lot of outcomes, and so we know we don't do as well. Um, and I, you know, I think that once we get to a point where, like Dr. Dennis said, we can all agree on what standardized measurements make sense in this field and then do some risk adjusting. And then, you know, I think we're going to have to be forced to share and be transparent with them because, again, it's such a subjective field uh, with this patient population that many of us uh, are, again, I think, taking advantage of and, and capitalizing on the lack of information and the lack of data. It's really a shame. And the sooner it changes, the better, because patients, particularly on the front end, are going to places that they shouldn't be going to. And no one will tell them. It's really sad. There is been a lot of progress made, uh, yet clearly a lot of good work still to be done amongst all the parameters that uh, that we spoke about this afternoon. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with NEJM Catalyst. We appreciate it. Thank you to Dr. Dennis and David Newton. Thank you. Thanks so Thank much you. for having us.